netcasting from Chicago, Los Angeles, and Sydney. You're listening to this week's FX Podcast from FXGuide.com. This episode is brought to you by the new term at FXPhD.com. With over 87 courses on offer, including new courses in VFX Supervision, RenderMan, Nuke, Moto, After Effects, Premiere, and Smoke. Take your career to the next level at fxphd.com. Thanks for joining us for this FX podcast, where we take our passion for visual effects and bring you in-depth interviews with visual effects artists around the world. The FX Podcast was started to give us a place to dig deep on the technical side, talk one-on-one with top visual effects artists, advance the craft of visual effects, and pay respect to hardworking, creative people producing amazing work. This is your chance to hear directly from the source, from the front lines of visual effects. And today, we're going to take that mission really, really to heart uh, and get a little history as well. I'm joined on the line with Mike Seymour. Hey, Jeff. How are you, man? I'm very good. I am really excited about this podcast. Man, you got to know that I am. <laughs> yeah, so let's talk about So the gentleman's name is Alvy Ray Doc, Smith. Dr. Alvy Ray Smith, yeah. And uh, some of you will know him, some of you won't. Um, it's uh, perhaps a crying shame that some of you don't because, Jeff, obviously you and I are compositors at heart and this is the guy who you can draw a direct line from everything that we do in our careers to the source. Um Obviously, compositing before it was Nuke, before it was Shape, before it was Flame. If you go back, was Henry, and then it was Harry, and then it was Paintbox, and then it was Paint Systems. And it's very hard. It was um, just the, the, the story of paint, really, uh, because 2D compositing uh, really built out from there. And, and if we were to use anything a lot in 2D compositing today, and, and generally in compositing, it'd be things like, oh, I don't know, an alpha channel. Well, Dr. Avi Smith is the guy that said, hey, I've got a good idea. Let's put an alpha channel embedded in there and we'll call it RGBA and then named it Alpha. And with Ed Catmull, uh, founded uh, Pixar. But before that, was it Lucasfilm? Directed the Genesis sequence, uh, directed Andre and Wally B. Before that, uh, was involved uh, making the first ever 32-bit paint system. Uh, sorry, 24-bit paint system. And before that, was at Xerox Park. I mean... His story is remarkable and really touches on so many um, great people from Steve Jobs to Bill Gates right back to, um, you know, huge uh, sort of legendary figures in the computer graphics uh, field. It's just an astounding story. I I was really thrilled listening to it. Everybody's in for a treat listening to this. I mean, obviously... For me, a couple of the big light bulbs in the in the Quantel paint box, and preceding that, you know, seeing things with the uh, the even the original Mac paint and things like that, and 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 just the, the the idea of being able to store a frame other than you know on a piece of moving tape was uh, pretty revolutionary. So it's pretty exciting to see to hear this this history and and his involvement in the wide range, like you just mentioned. I mean, it's his legacy is amazing. Yeah, and we've got some great pieces in the written story as well. Um, one of the guys that worked, uh, in fact, you know, you could argue was one of the first employees ever at Xerox Park, the Palto Alto Research Center that most of us would know from, you know, the birth of the graphical user interface and the development of mice and everything else, uh, is a guy called uh, Dick Shoup. And Dick uh, has also contributed to the story. And he sent us a photo, which I just couldn't get over, which is the first ever image he captured on an 8-bit 
uh, frame buffer. And he actually has a photo of the 8-bit frame buffer as well, which is a wired up, enormous mm-hmm. thing. And uh, basically, he got the picture up and it was being held in the frame buffer. Then he realized that, uh-oh, how am I going to record this? <laughs> and so if he switched it off, uh, it was going to go away. So he had to plug in an interface card while the power was on so he could get um, a picture and save it out to a, to a, a uh, hard drive. But it's just really funny. And so we've got that original picture and so much more. We, it was just an amazing amount of stuff as we went through the archives. Um, I, yeah. I have heard and known about Dr. Avery Smith for years. Uh, and another person that features really prominently um, in the sort of parallel stories, and because I was trying to stay on, on his story, um, is Ed Catmull, because Ed Catmull uh, was, again, another um, uh, early person at New York, IT, uh, New York Institute of Technology, and then, of course, at Lucasfilm, and then uh, at Pixar. So there's just like heaps of really great people in this story um, that's just, I, I just found it phenomenally interesting and just a real honor to talk to him. Yeah, and obviously you had your homework done in advance. It was a joy to listen to. I think people were really Oh, yeah, like it. I, I absolutely was not going to blow this one. I, uh, I did a lot of research for this. Well, I got a kick out of the, uh, the uh, remember a while back, you, we asked people to duplicate the classic pool ball, the, the origins of motion mm-hmm. blur thing, and it was, it was fun to hear him talk about that. And... Yeah, and, and he's quite you know, blunt and open in this interview. Um, his discussion about coming to blows with Steve Jobs is uh, really, yeah. you know, really interesting. And, you know, yeah, he was, that's for sure. he was uh, you know, we've actually got the documents. He's, I've actually got a copy of the agreement selling the technology from Lucasfilm to the new entity, which is Pixar. And uh, it's signed by Ed Catmull and Alvy Ray Smith. Now, the investor in them was Steve Jobs. Um, but Steve Jobs didn't actually buy the technology out of ILM, nor did he buy Pixar per se. He was an investor in Pixar, though that initial five, to $10 million investment grew to about $50 million before uh, Toy Story. And, and I didn't realize this, but actually that, uh, that, at that time, according to Dr. Avery Smith, was actually half of Jobs' fortune um, invested in, uh, in Pixar. Uh, but wow. yeah, he then went, of course, to make billions from that deal as he took the company yeah. public and then sold it to Disney. But look, there's also really um, amazing stuff in there. His uh, account, as you'll hear, of uh, meeting John Lasseter for the first time is just golden. Yeah. Yeah, there's some great, and the, yeah, I would love to, <laughs> having listened to this interview, I would love for you to talk to Cat Muller or Lasseter and just kind of round this all out. It would be amazing. The, the guy that's on my list, I mean, obviously I would love to talk to those guys and, uh, and we know at any time would be happy to do so. But um, the other guy that I would love to talk to, and it may never be possible, I don't know, I, I certainly would uh, run out, roll out the red carpet again. Um, do you want to know, guess who I'm talking about? It's uh, Jim Blinn. Jim mm. Blinn started in this story very early on and pops in and out of the story the whole yes. way along. And, uh, and Dr. Avery Smith talks about him. And this is the guy that literally invented bump mapping and environment mapping, um, JPL flybys, which I, I don't know about you, but I know you're a space nut, right? Like you're really into yeah. the space program. I remember those JPL flybys of uh, Jupiter and Saturn that he did at JPL. It was just breathtaking. Yeah. It is funny how many people in our Southern California, especially, bounce back and forth between film and uh, and uh, imaging with JPL. I've known several people have done that. Oh yeah, so there's just a lot of really significant people and a lot of goodwill, um, and a lot of really interesting anecdotes about uh, the time at Lucasfilm and how they've gone about doing um, 
the various projects there. But look, the I mean, everything. Developing caps for Disney. I mean, that's not exactly a small... If you made a list of things, that would be a big enough thing right there. Absolutely. And, and the, uh, the fellowship at uh, Microsoft and, uh, you know, yeah, the, obviously... And the, respect for original hand-drawn animations and... Yep, yep. Now, the list goes on and on and on. So yeah. it's been, it's been uh, fun researching it and terrific talking to him. And I really want to thank him and the other... Because a lot of people um, have been sending me uh, stills and pictures and uh, reference to material that we can uh, include in the written story as well so that uh, we could give you some... So, you know, some of them are just like happy snaps, but they're, they're great to see. I think, you know, the guys oh, it's great stuff. It's great history. History. That's oral history, written history. It's really great stuff. And, and uh, speaking of which, you guys have been doing great work uh, down there lately on the, uh, the Spider-Man article. It's been great. You've been very busy. Yeah, yeah. The Spider-Man article was, uh, was a lot of fun. I don't know if anyone's seen it, but it, it, the, one, the thing about that that uh, astounded me is that only about three weeks before I'd been in depth on Prometheus and we'd been discussing the subsurface right. scattering. And I was incredibly impressed with the advances that uh, Weta had made in subsurface scattering for Prometheus, only to then discover within about, um, actually it was probably longer than that, like a month or so ago, but then about a week after I did that, I discovered Sony uh, had done some really amazing work on the Lizard in Spider-Man. And then we got to talk to them in depth and discovered that they'd gone another step beyond even what Weta had done. And I, I joke in the story that a week is a long time in computer graphics because yeah. I couldn't believe it. And... Uh, and while we haven't published that, if you were to hear the actual the interview when I did that, I was they were like, and then we did full ray trace subsurface scattering. I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm sorry, what? And that must have taken you forever. And they were like, yeah, it did. And uh, wow. it's a uh, it's a credit to them. They really pushed it. I don't know if you've seen Spider Man yet, but the lizard is just superbly rendered. Mm, no, I haven't seen it yet, but I've seen the stills, and even that makes me want to see more. So, mm. so yeah, no, it's good. It's good. And, of course, we've also been incredibly busy launching the new term uh, at FX PhD, which is, uh, you know, I mean, we haven't had a lot of sleep lately. Yeah, I, I know. Well, you and John did the, uh, the fast start for the smoke release, and now I see there's a smoke class this term John's going to do, intermediate smoke. And a couple things I'm really interested in, the VFX Foundations and uh, feature film VFX supervision with Sheena. Yeah, the foundation thing in England is interesting. Uh, for those of you that don't know, the UK had a big inquiry into the skills that would be required uh, to address the needs of visual effects in their film industry. And the basis of this was a report that came out, and we covered that report when it came out and outlined a lot of stuff. On the back of that, uh, several of the facilities decided to actually mount campaigns to produce what you would almost call a uh, basics uh, like it's the basic building blocks of the of knowledge that you would need at every level. So it's not the basics as, you know, these are the sort of simple terms that someone should know to get started. It's more like these at all levels are the fundamental kind of knowledge um, blocks you need from understanding linear color space to, you know, other stuff to do with the maths of compositing. And those are being taught internally now at the top London facilities and luckily uh, we've managed to get Tal to give actually will be two part um, uh, course on those fundamentals so if you aren't able to be employed right now in a late major London facility you're going to be able to have access to that um, that amount of research and that amount of uh, thought that's gone into what those sort of foundation knowledge blocks I guess would probably the best sort of awkward way to describe it but if you get what I'm talking about it isn't just like basics as in you know this is what compositing is and this is what um, an alpha channel is. It's not like that at all, but it's the uh, sort of cornerstones upon which the other stuff is built from a 
from a technology point of view. And then the other one you, you flagged, of course, is, uh, is Sheena's uh, VFX supervision course. Um, Sheena, having just been accepted into the Academy, as you, uh, I think, posted on our site. Yeah. Yeah, and you just did the interview with her recently about the Hunger Games, and that was a very interesting discussion. And in fact, it's on, it's on the basis of that. We were the only company that was allowed to cover the Hunger Games stuff like that. And again, we have got permission um, with Sheena and the Hunger Games as a sort of a... Uh, not, we're not, it's not a case study per se, but she'll be referencing the Hunger Games the whole way through the course as she covers the entire role of being a supervisor. But there's a point that John made well the other day we need to flag this isn't supervisor as in at a facility i am the most senior person slash supervisor of the team this is the studio supervisor that would then work with each of those supervisors at the facility so sheena has gone from being a supervisor at sony to now being a studio supervisor and being responsible for multiple uh vendors around the world pulling together a film and of course managing um, stuff to do with onset and being the one responsible for the supervision slash quality of the work overall. Right. Very cool. I'm very excited about that one. And there's just a whole bunch of new courses. I mean, the fifth kind, I think that's going to be interesting. I don't want to get into detail on much more, but, you know, the After Effects boot camp. I'm, I'm excited about the audition uh, part of the uh, <laughs> new app. Yeah, well, I've been using it, and uh, I've actually stopped using Levelizer and been using that to do some cleanups. I had an interview I had to edit recently that had a lot of, a lot, a lot, a lot of pops and clicks in the, in the audio from... Uh, speech patterns of one of the people and uh i was able to clean it up beautifully with audition and i'm anxious to get actual <laughs> techniques and uh, training on that because i kind of figured that stuff out with uh my on my own and poking around the internet and uh and also premiere six i've been f- poking around with that quite a bit because obviously everybody's kind of searching for what's next there and john's been kind of pushing an initiative for us to look at that um for fx guide work and uh, so I'm, I'm looking forward to that too there's a lot of good stuff a lot of great new courses this term yeah and just to bring it back to alvy ray smith uh, one of the things that he did back in i'm gonna say 78 i'm just challenging my memory now for a second um is he presented at sidgraph a what was then pivotal talk on paint and it was funny as he says in the interview he he only really kind of pulled it together it was 78 um the night before the tutorial the talk was meant to be happening it was in new york and he agreed to do it, and he was like, yeah, whatever. And he, and he then got to the date and hadn't really prepared for it, but he did it the night before. And this became the basis of many successive uh, SIDGRAPH courses on paint. It was like a foundation building block, and it became very pivotal in the Adobe Photoshop um, law case uh, that you'll hear the litigation over patents, which, uh, in fact, Adobe won against Quantel. Also, interestingly, by the way, Photoshop was developed when he was at Lucasfilm, uh, though he wasn't directly involved in it. It's a funny story you'll hear in the podcast about what happened there. But um, this idea that he was uh, willing to sort of present and publish their ideas as early as the 70s continued, of course, into Lucas and into Pixar. And Pixar today is a huge supporter of SIDGRAPH, publishes very extensively. We're looking forward to SIDGRAPH this year for papers on Brave. And one of the areas that ties in, I think, with PhD is that we've got um, a new RenderMan course. And I think I'm allowed to announce this um, and uh, don't hold me to it because <laughs> I'm kind of leaking this. But um, our professor uh, for the RenderMan course, the, uh, Christoph, who's, Christoph, who's doing that course for us, is also going to be presenting, we believe, on the Pixar booth at SIDGRAPH. And uh, certainly we've been very actively involved with working with uh, Pixar. But this idea of um, publishing, of giving away your stuff is, of course, what FX Guide was built on. Since the first day, 
Jeff, that you said, hey, I've got a good idea for a website looking at your TV guide and, uh, and said, <laughs> no. Mike, why don't we call it FX Guide? Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 we've always had the philosophy that you get back as much as you give out or more than you give out. And, uh, you know, it's, it's certainly been a, a very uh, great thing for us and the feedback we get from people and help that people open their doors to us and let us into things that, you know, we would have never have dreamed of when we started FX Guide, being able to do in-depth interviews and breakdowns of things like uh, like the Spider-Man thing we were talking about, for example. I mean, the support of the community has been really great and very much in the spirit of SIGGRAPH, which is why we love SIGGRAPH so much. So it's awesome. And I would honestly say that Ed Catmull and uh, Dr. Avery Smith, or the, they're actually both doctors, but um, both of those guys were uh, central to the philosophy that was built up around, firstly, Lucas's computer graphics research and, and computer division, and then into into Pixar, and uh, and that's one of the reasons that today still um, he's very keen to uh, talk and share his experiences and do stuff. And look, some of the stuff in this um, in this talk you may have come across if you read perhaps Droidworks uh, or even Steve Jobs's uh, recent biography. Uh, but his story, Doctor Avery, some story, I think is just a really interesting thread, and I, and I hope you guys enjoy it. Yeah, why don't we jump into that interview now? So firstly, I just want to say what an honor it is to talk to you because, quite frankly, uh, being a compositor myself for 20, 25 years, uh, I just feel like we all owe you a debt of gratitude because uh, while, of course, many people would would know you perhaps best from the birth of Pixar, of course, I know you best from the birth of paint systems. No, that's great. Thanks. Tell me... I, <laughs> I wanted to read something to you if I could um, and uh, and get... <laughs> Because it's uh, something that you wrote, and uh, I think it's a, a great window on uh, on so many aspects. Uh, so my apologies to read something that you wrote, but let me just uh, read this quote from a, an article that you wrote. It said, uh, by then I was an old man of 31. Ed and David were just barely 30 and 26 respectively, and Malcolm would turn 25 in a few days, all three of their birthdays within a, three weeks of one another. Thus began the NYIT Lucasfilm Pixar Computer Graphics Dynasty, a marriage of the House of Xerox and the House of Utah, pixels and geometry, art and technology. The movie we dreamt of then, completely generated by computers, was first shown in November 1995, 20 years later. Toy Story, of course, being that movie. Tell me, who, who is Ed, David and Malcolm? Can you tell us who those people were and just to give us some insight into that quote? Sure. The uh, the original four musketeers, as I call them, at New York Tech were Ed Catmull, um, David DeFrancisco, and Malcolm Blanchard and myself. David DeFrancisco and I came from Xerox, uh, and Malcolm and Ed came from University of Utah, and uh, Ed and I, of course, were the co-founders of Pixar. So the the story of paint systems and uh, that leading, of course, into many, many other aspects of computer graphics really starts, as I understand it, from around Xerox in around 72, 73 or 74, is that right? That's right. Um, and Jim Blinn was involved in that. Jim Blinn, of course, uh, who would become incredibly well-known for his work at JPL, uh, but not, not somebody that was part of, what, the NYIT group? Well, Jim Blinn is an interesting character. In fact, I just had dinner with him the day before yesterday. <laughs> um, we're still in touch. Uh, he, 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 of course, is one of the early masters, um, but he always carved out his own path. Um, I tried again and again to hire him into my group, and he would come and be part of the group for a while and then decide it just wasn't for him and go back to uh, JPL, which was his home base. 
until I was a graphics fellow at Microsoft, my last paying job, and uh, he liked the sound of that title, graphics fellow, and asked asked if he could have it, and I, you know, come up and join Microsoft. And he would do it if he could get that title. So I had made it. I'd always told Microsoft that I didn't want anybody else to have that title, <laughs> and they asked me if they, if uh, it was okay for Jim. I said for Jim Blinn, sure. So Jim Blinn became the only other graphics fellow at Microsoft, and we got him. It's the first time we'd actually worked. He and, and he stayed there until he retired. So finally got him away from GPL. So he came to. He, you know, he wasn't on the scene uh, quite yet when I was at Xerox Park. But at New York Tech, we hired him for, in fact, one of the things he brought me the day before yesterday was a, uh, uh, a tape, a DVD of an old tape that he had made, I think it was summer of 76 at New York Tech, with some of our earliest crude animations on it, and dropped it off for me, to me. And then he, let's see, at New York, at, at, excuse me, at Lucasfilm, we tried again to get him. Uh, and he came up. He was there again, briefly, wasn't he? Pay. He was just there. Yeah, he was both places just briefly, but he just it just didn't work. He's such an individualist, has his own way of writing code. Doesn't you know? He's a he, he has his own way of doing things and is very strict about it. He's a, a Saturnine personality, and he he just likes it done a certain way, and he has a hard time dealing with other people inside his own world. He's a, he's a master. Oh yeah, so, and. Uh, you know, he give me what he wants because he's too good to, to he, mess around with. Yeah, absolutely. He's Jim Lynn. He can get whatever he wants. But tell me, uh, yeah. who is uh, Uncle Alex? Uncle Alex was Alex Alexander Schur, Doctor Alexander Schur, who was president and owner of New York Institute of Technology, founder of it. It was a private. You know all of this, don't you? The New York yes, Institute of Technology was was a private university put together. Uh, well. We thought it was a diploma mill at the time. It was basically kids from the uh, from Long Island who couldn't get into real colleges would come to New York Tech to get a degree. And the names of the names of the degrees would be something like the first two words would be meaningful, like video engineering, and then there'd be a third word, technician. So the first two terms sound like a real degree, and then there'd just be this word technician added on the end. So I thought I always thought the best indication of what of the scholastic level of New York Institute of Technology was its bookstore, which sold auto parts. <laughs> its, its display window had tires and batteries in it because the people who came to school there drove their, drove their own cars, and that was what was important to them. You, um... But I also, want, I also want to hasten to say that New York Tech has now become respectable, I think, and uh, has left that... But he was central... ...sort of pass behind... He was central in some of his, what I'm going to describe as shopping sprees at Evans and Sutherland, uh, where Jim Blinn, I think, was in 74, in, in getting the necessary technology that allowed you and people like Ed to do the advances that you did. He really played a critical role, though his, his name is, I guess, not so widely known. Yeah, he's one of the unsung heroes and one of the most interesting people in the history of computer graphics. He... Uh you're right. You're right that uh, Jim. Well, there are a whole bunch of people that were at the University of Utah, uh, including Jim Blinn, uh in the uh, in the um, I guess it'd be the late '60s and early '70s. Um, Evans and Sutherland, of course, was in the same town as the University of Utah, so there was a lot of commerce between the two. And this is all the period with um, uh, Martin Ewell, isn't it? Whose teapot is now the most famous teapot in the history of man. 
Yes, Martin was there, and he and he served a very important uh, role in my history by introducing me to New York Tech. Um, he uh, so David DeFrancisco and I. David never really got hired at Xerox Park, but he and I worked together there on doing art pieces. And uh, Xerox fired me because they decided not to do the color. So David and I jumped in my car and we drove over to the University of Utah because we heard that there was a, a second frame buffer in the world was being built by Evans and Sutherland and that the uh, University of Utah was going to get one of them. So we, we had to have a frame buffer for a grant that we had obtained from the National Endowment of the Arts. So we headed there. And they said no, but it was Martin Newell, I'm pretty sure, who said, you you need to hear about this crazy man who just came through here and bought one of everything in sight. And I said, including the frame buffer, which wasn't hadn't been produced yet? He said, yes, including the frame buffer. Now, the period we're talking so, about is, just to set the record for everybody, we're talking around, around 73, 74, when when the height of technology in terms of certainly what I've built my life around is an 8-bit paint system coming out, which is super paint, right? This is the, the period yes. where that was the pinnacle the, of kind of what Dick's we did. Shops, Dick's shops as 8-bit super paint was the most sophisticated. Well, there wasn't a paint program before that, unless you count 2-bit, two, 3-bit, three, three you know, tries at it, but uh, his was the real, the real, I think of it as the, the real, the first really real paint system, including all the bells and whistles and everything you need for saving and restoring and so forth, videoing, and it, it was, uh, you know, it's what, it, it's what attracted me to come to Xerox Parks. So when I saw his machine, I went, oh, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> that's, that's what I've been looking for. And in fact, you did do that. You, art and, you made an 8-bit paint system at NYIT, right? Yeah, I, because I had learned how to do it from Dick at the Xerox Park, and the first thing we bought was an 8-bit frame buffer. So I merely, being an artist, wrote up a paint program and a programmer. Uh, and but, but fairly quickly after that, um, uh, we talked to Alex Schur into buying two more 8-bit frame buffers so we could gang them together to have the first 24-bit. Well, now, just, just before we get to that 24-bit, that 8-bit paint yep. system was sold to Ampex. I believe sold sort of without you being directly involved, though you then went over to help set it up. Is that right? Yeah, I came back from, I think I was in Europe or someplace, and I came back, and Alex proudly told me that he had sold the paint system. I went, no, you don't sell. You know, <laughs> and I think I said this internally and not to him externally. He said, no, you don't sell software, you license it, you know, but he had sold it. So, um, well, interestingly, we hunted down the guys that bought it from you, <laughs> uh, uh, obviously were at Ampex, uh, vastly no longer, um, and they said that that was actually a PDP-11 computer that they swapped because Ampex had a slow motion disc recorder, the HS100, they developed for ABC Sports, and this PDP-11, you guys were into... Uh, doing this stuff, Ampex didn't have any cash, you guys didn't, you guys wanted one of these computers, so that sale for that first day. You know, I don't, remember, I don't remember what the deal was, is that what it was? That's that interesting. It yeah. swapped, you swapped a computer for your 8-bit paint system. <laughs> okay, whatever, whatever, it was, it, was, it was fun, of course, I went out there to install it, and that's when I met uh, 
Tom Porter and Larry Evans. And I don't know whether I've met Tom Porter then yet, but I've met Larry Evans and Janae Shake uh, and, and several of the uh, Impex guys that maybe you've talked to. Yeah, and Charlie Anderson, I believe, at, uh, who was behind that deal, and uh, Arnold Taylor, I, who ended up as I a I don't remember manager. those names, yeah. And, and it was actually, I, I understand... probably the manager types, yeah. And as I understand it, it was when you were over in Redwood City that you actually came up with that idea of ganging together the frame saws to produce uh, an actual beyond 8-bit paint system. Do you want to explain yeah, that? Yeah, it poured out of my mind one night at the, at the motel, and I said, oh, shoot, that'd be easy. I just thought through it. I went, oh, my God, that'd be so easy to write that code. And I did it in about a week, I think, when I got back. It is actually very difficult almost. I tried doing it yesterday, explaining to a, uh, somebody in our office who's in their 20s what a frame buffer was. And it was actually, it was a difficult conversation because it was so hard to conceive of a world where, you know, a frame buffer uh, was a thing that you needed or needed to invent. But can you explain yeah, this? So I, don't, I don't even use the word anymore. I say it's a graphics card. You know, we had the first graphics card. And, of course, the graphics card was the size of a couple of refrigerators, but it was a graphics card. Most people think they know what a graphics card is or a graphics chip. And that's essentially what it was. And that was hundreds and hundreds chip. of thousands of dollars worth of gear. For one, basically thirty-two. Yeah, the first, the first twenty-four-bit uh, frame buffer in uh, at New York Tech. I figured it out once in in um, in modern dollars was uh, was a million dollars. Well, we worked and it out that it's, it'd even be more than that today. I think that calculation you came to. Oh yeah, was, that was when I figured that out. It was in the nineties, sometimes. So that's yes. true. It's, it's now closer more, to four you know, million. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. It's uh, you know the, the inflation is so huge. But, uh, yeah, and, and what amazes me is, oh, Alex Sure did it just because we said so. It is. He, you know, he, I, he was the strangest guy, Mike. He, he, uh, he, you know how you and I are talking right now, and we, we, you say something and I say something in response, and we go back and forth, and there's kind of a understood rhythm to a conversation. Yes, sir. And he wasn't like that. He just came into a room talking, <laughs> and he left the room talking. And it was a not. It was a constant stream of verbiage, word salad. David D. always called it, and I called it Casey Stingle speak for a fav- famous baseball player here in the states. Um, and, it, and we didn't know what to do at first. And finally, I just started talking while he was talking. And after a while, I'd hear my words show up in his stream of words, and that's how we figured the communication had been made. It was really strange. But in fact, he and was that, one of. What, he was one of four, I think you've said, four incredibly significant patrons in your uh, career. The other three being yeah. Lucas, Jobs, and Gates, right? Yeah, all, all three of the four were became billionaires because. Well, three of the four are billionaires. Two of them because of us. <laughs> uh, that would be Jobs and and and, and uh, um, uh, George Lucas. Well, just he before lost, we, he lost, just he before lost we, everything. just before we get to. Uh, I, I just corrected myself because I said 32-bit, but it's actually 24-bit, that paint system. 24-bit. 32 was, was about the same time, you know, there was one more purchase of uh, a bunch of frame buffers, and at that point we went full 32-bit uh, uh, at New York Tech. And, of course, at Lucasfilm, we started at 32-bits because we, we knew how the world worked then. But this is to not uh, to actually stop for a second and just take stock of the fact that it was you and Ed that sat around one night, as I understand it, and literally said, hey, I got an idea. Let's not just do RGB. Let's do RGBA. In fact, you came up with the term alpha channel, right? Yeah. That's, 
pretty much it. Ed was writing a hidden surface uh, algorithm for a for a uh, cigarette paper, and um, he kept rendering it. You know, in those days, rendering a foreground or a background was torture. It took hours. And he would slowly render using his new algorithm into, you know, he'd put, bring a picture into the frame buffer, and he would slowly render his foreground object using his new algorithm over that background. And he says, you know, God, I wish I could just leave, the, you know, the background in there and just, this thing would, instead of having to figure in the background while I'm, I'm uh, rendering it just be there and the right thing would happen that would composite it with the background and, and uh, we knew what the formula was. You know, it, it, it was alpha A plus one minus alpha B where alpha is the transparency. Which it still is to this day. Out. It's exactly the same fundamental. Yeah. It's exactly the same. It's linear interpolation. It's real yeah. simple. And uh, I said, you know, I can, I can write the, the file system to do that overnight. And uh, it did. You know, basically just added a fourth, fourth channel, just like the others, um, and gave it the name Alpha because we always used the Greek letter Alpha when we wrote the formula down. And wrote the, <laughs> it was a Unix under a Unix system, and Unix has man, manual pages called man pages, and Absolutely. I wrote the man page for Alpha. Yeah, I, know, I, I just, called it that the first night. I'm, I'm sorry, it's just astounding to me. Like my entire career, uh, it's just. I'm, I'm sorry, I don't want to be like sycophantic, but this is just. Uh... <laughs> but, but, but it's not. It's not. I mean, what, what I want to get across the other direction is it was so easy. You know, it's just like when you're when you're the first explorer on a new continent, you get to pick all the little hanging fruit and name everything, and it's it's not that hard. Well, uh, so if you'd been there first, as, you would have done the same as we will thing. Continue I don't want to make this a big discussion. deal out of it. Well, okay, but as we will yeah. continue this discussion, there's if that's the case, then you hit a lot of low hanging fruit because we're only at the the, yeah. the start of the uh, exercise because this is the end of the night uh, the seventies. Uh, 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 and you produce uh, Big Paint 3, I think. Uh, I think uh, Jim Blinn goes on to do a paint program at JPL, another one. And, in fact, at SIDGRAPH in 78, you give a seminal tutorial on Big Paint, which became the kind of de facto start of any kind of paint uh, stuff at yeah, SIDGRAPH. Yeah, in fact, we almost didn't write it. It's amazing how, you know, we were going so fast. We had a, we, we were in heaven there at New York Tech. We had all the money we wanted and, and all the talent we wanted and all the time we wanted and didn't have to worry about money. And we just were going as far as fast as we could go. And nobody wanted to stop and write it down. For one thing, it wasn't that hard. It was just, we just were the first people there. And uh, that was a mistake, it turned out, in the long run. It caused all these patent battles. But that cigarette, that particular cigarette, which was 78, I think, uh, I was to give a class, and I sat down and almost literally the night before the notes were due, I wrote all those things, those papers up, which turned out to be crucial for patent litigation for many years. Absolutely, and, and also recorded the fact that we actually did it. You know, and, I, and even then, I sort of uh, just threw in an appendix at the end that I'd done RGB. I didn't really <laughs> spend much time on, it, and that of course was the most important part. So Ampex goes off and does uh, the AVA, the AVA paint system and a bunch of other stuff and, and a lot of stuff into broadcast and uh, and that's a whole separate story. Yeah. But there is one person there that yeah. you touched on that's significant. It's Tom Porter. Do you want to explain yeah, Tom's Tom. significance? Yeah. Well, Tom, let's see. I'm... When did you move to Lucas? Lucas, uh, Lucas happened in late 79, early 80. Because you brought him over um, to, to Lucas, right? 
Yeah. Um, but let's see. I did. I mean, he was my first hire at Lucas as head of computer graphics there. Uh, and the reason was is because I knew since his experience with Ava, Ava was built, you know, it wasn't my software, it was built on my software, so I knew he knew what my code was like yep. and how I saw it. And uh, we needed a paint program at Lucasfilm, so I hired him. Don Canoose, at, the famous Don Canoose at Stanford, said he was a great guy, and I snapped him up. So he, he was my first hire. Not so, counting David, because David kind of, even though he was really the first hire, he kind of designed him, let's say. Yeah. I don't want to take anything away from uh, Lucasfilm, George Lucas himself, or anything else, but it just seems to me that there was, at the beginning of the 80s, what could only be described as a as one of several dream teams, another one would be when you when you split off to uh, form Pixar, of amazing talent. But in the case at Lucasfilm, at the time, at the beginning of the 80s, you were like this amazing brain trust of some of the greatest talent in the world. But you weren't actually doing much, were you? I mean, come the time... No, of the... in fact, we, one of the mistakes we made early was that uh, we thought Lucasfilm understood what they were getting when they hired us away from New York Tech. We had been careful, we thought. It turns out not careful enough. When uh, we got the call from Lucasfilm uh, to insist, you know, we had a cushy situation out there on Long Island amongst the mansions and the estates. And we didn't want to go, we didn't want to be lesser than that. Uh, So we said, look, we want somebody from Lucasfilm to come out and visit us so they could see what we're used to and what we do. I actually must admit, I they, thought in, from years ago, I thought you were in the middle of Manhattan with New York IT, but in fact, it was out in a really no, 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 wonderful that, kind of... No, it was out on Long Island. Yeah. And it was really a beautiful, you know, where the very wealthy live on the north shore of Long Island, where Great, great Gatsby was written about this, uh, this area. It was just a state after state after state, and all the, all the buildings on this so-called campus were former mansions on former estates. It was quite marvelous place. Felt like I felt like I was in a movie every day. Well, in fact, it's they were used real, for movies, but it was. They? Some of those locations ended up in films. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. In fact, our Dietzaversky, which was our video mansion, uh, had, had a starring role in at least two movies that I know of, Three Days of the Condor and Arthur, the first Arthur. So now you get over to Lucasfilm, and what went wrong? Well, not what went wrong, but why do you think it was? Well, that... you know, it was so, so Richard Edlin, their Academy Award-winning uh, uh, um, special effects director, came out and spent the day with us yep. at New York Tech, and, I, and he and I palled around all over Manhattan that night and really had a wonderful time. And, you know, we talked about everything. I thought it was really clear. We make content as well as machines and software. I thought it was just dead obvious. We were artists, and, you know, we are, you know already had a piece in it would end up a moment sooner or later, and uh, we, you know. But when we got to Lucasfilm, somehow that part had been dropped, and all George thought we were a bunch of nerds there to build hardware for him. And the fact is, we did know how to build hardware, and we did build hardware and software for him. But we thought what he really wanted us there for, at least as far as computer graphics was concerned, was to be in his movies. And after about a year, I realized he had never come to ask me. Because Ed Catmull, Ed Catmull had very explicitly wanted to make a film, and you had already done art pieces and a bunch of other stuff. You were all on that trajectory. Yeah, in fact, we we started out at 
you know, we had, so one of the marvels of New York Institute of Technology that you and I haven't touched on yet was that there was a full animation house there. Disney-style cell animation house making a movie called Tubby the Tuba. We learned our animation chops from professionals at New York Tech. And the, uh, Alex, Uncle Alex's idea was to bring the computer in and help him, you know, cut the, cut the uh, workload down on the human being so he could make more money in animated films. He saw himself as the next Disney. You know, I, I laugh at that in retrospect because he just didn't have it. But we learned the movie business, animation business in particular, in, 19, in the mid-1970s on Long Island and had the idea then that we were going to be the first group of people in the world to make the first digital movie. And we didn't know it was going to take us 20 years, but we knew it was going to happen and we'd be there first, we thought. And uh, I'm leaving out one thing there. What is it? Yeah, maybe it'll come to me later. Well, I've got a book here beside me, which is a book of traditional, uh, literally traditional drawing that was uh, from Ooh. back in that time that's showing how to make hippos kind of draw. It was all line drawing kind of book. And I understand that this same... Preston uh, Blair, the Preston Blair's book? Yes, sir. And I understand you actually brought that to life. That's how hardcore yeah, Preston you Blair, were. Preston Blair is my hero. He, uh, he, uh, in fact, I had to get the job at Xerox Park even earlier, uh, I had, you know, I had taken it and I had picked up that, book and taught myself the, uh, you know, the theory of animation. I don't want to claim I taught myself to animate because I didn't. Uh, I, I can make things move, but I can't make you believe that they're alive. That's the secret art magic of animation. I can't quite do that. But I did learn about squash and stretch and all that stuff from the master, Preston Blair, and and you and at Xerox Park entered the run, the walk cycle out of Preston Blair's book Yep, I'm and looking at it right now. System and reco- re- recorded it on uh, the uh, video disc that Dick had hooked up to his system. And so that was one of the first animations was at, uh, Peter Animations was at Xerox Park, even before I got to to uh, New York Tech. And then at New York Tech, I wheeled it out again, and I entered the Sexy Dancing Girl and uh, some of the other things out of there, just, just to, you know, make things move and and make the move as drawn by a master, Preston Blair. And Preston Blair figured in later when uh, hiring John, meeting John Lasseter for the first time. Well, just before we get to John Lasseter, there was a break in this uh, drought of being able to actually make films at Lucas when I believe someone in one of the other units who had a computer who used to get you guys to help him with it occasionally, uh, when asked about computer graphics, said that he didn't know, but he knew the guys who did, and wandered over into your building and, and started to ask you whether you'd be interested in this Genesis effect for Star Trek II. And so even though... Well, that's pretty close. That's pretty close to Is the it? story. Okay. It's, uh, his name was Jim Valu, and uh, uh, he, you know, he was at Industrial Light and Magic, and we were next door in a division of Lucasfilm. I think we were called Sprocket Systems at the time, something like that. And um, Paramount, not Lucasfilm, but Paramount came to Industrial Light and Magic for special effects for Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. And they wanted some of this, you know, sexy new computer graphics in it. And that's when Jim or somebody at ILM said, well, we don't do that. But I think the guys next door, namely us, do that. Was that so Chris Evans? Me and I, what? Was that Chris Evans? 
Chris Evans might have, it might have been, I, Chris Evans helped us make the piece finally for Star Trek II. Okay. But I think it was Jim Ballou that actually had an Apple computer. Okay. So he was the only computer person at ILM. It's hard to believe, isn't you know, it, that ILM this, had no computers? You know, this is all written up. I carefully wrote up the history of the making of the Genesis demo and published it in American Cinematographer way back when. Well, I mean, I'll, all the bloody details are in that article. I'll reference that, but I, I love the fact yeah. that you stayed... Who said, what, who, who said what, when, and all that is in there. Yeah. Because I understand from that article, you stayed up all night when you got this opportunity because you knew that to be given a yeah. whole sequence of a Paramount <laughs> film was no trivial matter. That's right. They, they, they said, uh, you know, they started telling me the idea, and I went, do you guys know what you can do with computers these days? They went, no. I said, I tell you what, let me go think about this overnight and come back tomorrow with an idea that we can actually do that'll, you know, that you'll like. And they said, okay. And at that moment, you know, I started floating about 10 feet off the floor because that was it. This was the big break. This is, I had just been asked to design myself, design the scene in a major motion picture. And, uh, and, and I, yeah, I remember right. that. I up all night long, all night long, you know, saying, oh my God, here it is. I don't blow it. I'll be, don't blow it. I remember when that came Black out, and it was board. incredible. I mean, it just was just, it seemed it. Okay, cool. blow yeah. the socks off everything, not least of which because yeah. we'd all said that the only thing that computer graphics had got under control at that point was shiny, metallic, plasticky surfaces, and you guys went yeah. straight to mountain ranges and fractals, which were fractals, virtually yeah. unknown. We had Lauren Carpenter, yeah. So, you know, I looked around my team and I said, well, we got Lauren on fractals, we got Bill Reeves on particle systems, Tom Duff on, on, you know, basically whatever they were really good at, I threw it into the suit <laughs> and designed a storyboard from it. And I understand and, you were influenced uh, by, by Jim Blinn's JPL flybys as well. That was sort of a bit of an inspiration. Yeah, now, you know, I had spent a summer, uh, uh, you know, several months between New York Tech and Lucasfilm living with Jim and working on the Cosmos series with him at JPL. Wow. I lived in his place, and, you know, I became highly influenced by his uh, beautiful flybys. So that was sort of the motivation of the, the underlying motivation of that shot, even though much of the flyby, I guess it's still a flyby, no matter how you look at it. Now, yeah, that was... Now, I mentioned Tom Porter before, and I remember when that came out, somebody telling us, and I hope it's true, that one of the mountains that was grown with the fractals actually completely blocked the camera, and so you used a paint system to basically paint out the mountain, because the idea of going back and remembering it... No, it's it, not, quite, not quite true. It's, damn, it's, I was hoping it was. very true, but, <laughs> it, what, but what happened is Lauren went back into the database and found the place where the spacecraft, spacecraft hit the mountain, and you know, by hand, changed the database so there was an option in the mountain for that one frame. Okay. And um, so it's not painted out, but it's 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 definitely taken out for that one frame. And my, I used to get a guaranteed laugh, Mike, whenever I'd show that piece. I'd tell people in advance that we did this. And so then I'd play the piece. And without, it, it was always the case that when that one frame went by, everybody saw it and burst into laughter. <laughs> I don't think anybody saw it unless they had been pre-warned. Right. But there was this kind of self-satisfied, oh, I saw it, laugh. It, would all, it was a guaranteed laugh. Wait, this is a long time ago. <laughs> now, so but you did use paint then, didn't you? Because uh, Tom had a paint system yeah. that was working, yeah. Yeah, Tom, Tom wrote the Lucasfilm 32-bit paint program with Alpha built in from the get-go. And it was used by Chris Evans 
to uh, paint the texture that was mapped onto a sphere that became the Earth in the final flyaway scenes of that shot. And it would be a couple of years after that, or maybe three, that you would do the absolutely seminal, pivotal computer graphics short film that was the template for what would become a Pixar tradition to this day, which was Andre and Wally B. Tell me about about that project. Okay, are you going to talk about Sunstone at all? Oh, I was. I, I skipped it by accident. I apologize. I, let's oh, okay. let's circle back on that right Sunstone now. Sunstone is one of my. I have a good story about Sunstone. I'd like to tell you. I got it restored. The oh, other really? Day. I looked at that image on the front cover of uh, Foley Van Dam for years Foley Van Damme, when I was yeah. computer graphics. Uh, so please. <laughs> well, um, you want me to talk about Sunstone? Please, sir. Yes. Okay, so. And this is, Sunstone is one of my proudest achievements is the reason I come back to it. I think I like it more than anything else I've done, even the Pixar movies. It's, uh, um, it was the most artistic achievement of my life. I worked in close collaboration with Ed M. Schuller, who was the, my mentor, my artistic mentor. Uh, one of my, you know, a beloved man in my, in my career who's now yeah, of course. Um, he showed up. Let's see how did this go. He he. We were we were having we we would up be up all night long in New York Tech, just going around the clock. We were having such fun. You know, television be running in the background or music or something. And one particular night, a special came on the public broadcasting channel, the PBS channel, that uh, about this guy Ed Inswiller. And he was this great artist, abstract artist in Paris in the 30s. And then he had discovered 16-millimeter film and made some of the first art art films. And then he discovered video and made some of the first video art. And, uh, and then it revealed that he lived on Long Island. And somebody said, well, we ought to invite him over. And I said, I don't think we have to. I think this guy is tracking technology, and he's going to find us. And sure enough, <laughs> I think it was less than a month later, he showed up at our door, the New York Tech Computer Lab, and said, I have a Guggenheim Fellowship in six months, and I'd like to turn out a three-hour movie with you guys. And we burst into laughter, affronting <laughs> his dignity. And he said, well, what did I say? And I said, we said, in six months, you'd be lucky to get three minutes, not three hours. And he said, well, okay, I'll chase my idea then. <laughs> And then he and I went into a partnership that is, like I said, it's just the most one, the most important I think in my life, artistically. And uh, he was he was definitely the artist. I was definitely the technician, the programmer. But he is enough of a lover of of uh, tech technology, and I'm enough of an artist that we we ping pong back and forth. He is a I want to do such and such, like push a body through a wall. I went, Ed, you know, we'll, we'll be able to do that one of these years, but not, not in 1979 or 8 or whatever it was. But if you modify your idea so that you're looking at it straight on, I produce it to a two-dimensional problem, and I can do the following thing, and I tell him what I was going to do. He would say, well, if you can do that, can you? And then he would stretch it another direction. And I would say, well, not quite, but if you do it this way. So we'd think, and sooner or later, we'd, we'd settle on an idea, and it would work. And we put a bunch of those together and made sunstone out of it, and it's now in the Museum of Modern Art, and I'm incredibly proud of the piece. There's a wonderful photo of you at his side uh, that I've seen. I must have, when I first saw the picture, I assumed it was taken through a glass window because there seemed to be a double image. 
You know the photo yeah, on the well, that, double image, that double image was an accident, but we loved it because it captured how we felt like we the experience was. You know, they it was a double exposure. The idea was uh, turn the room lights on so that you could capture us, turn the lights off, and re-expose so you capture what's on the on the display. But the camera got jostled slightly between the exposures, so the sunstone is floating out in space instead of on the face of the monitor. And we loved it because that captures how it felt, we thought, working together. We really had a wonderful time together. Then he went off and became the provost of CalArts in California, Walt Disney's college. So now there's that piece, there's the Genesis piece, but I want to swing back also onto Andre and Wally B. Yeah, okay. Because, yeah, back. Yeah. again, you were directing and... Uh, and this was, I guess, I think you first ran into John Lasser at a tour of Disney when he was still at Disney before yeah, he left. Well, now, this, part of our story, I don't know how well-known it is, but Ed and I always thought it'd be Disney. And we would go out on secret pilgrimages every year to Disney. The secret because, you know, we were a bit employed by somebody else. We were employed by Alex Schur, and then we were employed, employed by George Lucas. But we we just kept thinking, you know, the right people to do this are Disney. They've got enough money and they've got the great animation uh, history. And there's been, and in the early days, the talent was still there. The grand old men, some of them were still alive. We met them. Yeah. So Ed and I would go out there every year on our hands and knees and say, you know, basically, you guys ready yet? And there would always be some reason why they weren't. Because in the early days, Disney was run by a football player whose only qualification was that he married Disney's daughter. Okay. And, you know, he he just about ran the company into the ground, and certainly they had no vision about us that would, would include us. Now, we knew that the Walt or of iWorks were still alive. They would have grabbed us, snapped us right up, but they were both gone. And uh, But we met. The good part of this story is, even though we got rejected for, you know, year after year after year for a decade, um, we met all the technical people at Disney, and they knew that we had the goods and that Disney could be saved if they would just tie into us. The technical people knew that. And eventually it paid off. Now, one of these trips, it's while we were, let's see. Well, one of these trips. It must uh, have been before 84 because I think you hired Lasseter yeah, as a consultant. Uh, it's either 83 or 84 that we hired John. I can never quite nail it down. I, I I think I chased it down to 83 once, but I'm not positive. Anyhow, um, uh, Ed and I were on yet another one of these uh, secret trips to Disney, and we met this young kid. Now, I should, John Lester, and I should back up and say we had met a lot of animators by now. We, like, like I said, we had all these, we had an animation studio at New York Tech, but all the animators were frightened of us. Like, they, they just, no matter what we said, they thought we were going to take their jobs away. Part of that was because Uncle Alice told him that, you know, he didn't get it either. And we said, no, 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 we, we can't do the arts. You know, we, we don't have a clue how to do that. We still don't have a clue how to do that. We, we're going to lessen the grunt work and make the quality higher and the control better and so forth. But they didn't, the old men didn't believe us. There was a young animator or two that listened to us and, and studied us really carefully. But most of them were scared of us. Until we met this kid, John Laster, he wasn't scared of us at all because he had already done he had already done a little piece of computer graphics with a company called Magi, just a little test. Uh, so 
I think he, I saw that test once. It, it was in a bedroom, yeah. I think. With, uh, yeah, that's right. Yep. Right, Max or something like that. Um, so he said, hey, you want to come down to the archives? This being the Disney archives? And I said, sure. So we get down there, and he just turns and says, well, what do you want to see? And I went, uh, you mean anything? And he says, yeah. And I said, well, I, I want to see Preston Blair's Dancing Hippos. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so he says, okay. And he goes over and looks up on some kind of list, and that tells him which shelf to go through. And he pulls this manila envelope off the shelf, and there they are, the original pencil drawings of the Dancing Hippo by Preston Blair. And he does that flip that animators do to make it move. So John Lasseter showing you this himself in the archives of Disney. Yeah, and I flipped out. And about then, there was a major mind meld, you know, between me and Ed was there too. Uh, and um, then he said, "Well, what do you what do you want to see next?" And I went, "You know, get you mean anything?" He said, "Yes." And I said, "Well, I want to see the pink elephant scene from Dumbo." So I put that out, and basically hadn't left about them for, and uh, but I stayed with him several hours. I think down there, just just loving it. But you know, we couldn't touch the kid because he was working for Disney. Hmm. And it was uh, only a few months later when Ed was down at a conference at being held on the old Queen Mary, which is, was docked permanently at Long Beach and was a had been converted into a convention center. Uh, he, we were making our daily business call, you know, the, the problems of the day and so forth. And I said, well, what, who'd, you see, who'd you see down there today? Um, yeah, you know, Long Beach is in Southern California. And he said, well, I saw so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so, and, oh, John Lasher just came by, and he's not working at Disney anymore. And I went, Ed, get off the phone right now and go hire him. <laughs> He says, "Oh well, that's a great idea." So, so he did. But we we had to bring him in since George didn't believe that anybody but Disney could do animation. We had to bring him in without the animation word. And uh, I think Ed hired him as a user interface designer. That was it, user interface designer. So I think I'm right in saying that he helped on Andre and Wally B. But you were obviously the director. Oh of it. yeah. Well, in fact, I already had it going. Ed and I, at the 83 SIGGRAPH, we always, sooner or later, we were going to make character animated movie. That was our goal in the world. And up until, up through the 83 SIGGRAPH, it was always flying logos and, you know, shiny commercials and stuff. That's all people could do, not characters, because there wasn't enough compute power yet, frankly. There'd be an occasional character, but it was stiff and awkward and not interesting. So on the return trip, I mean, flying back home, I remember this very clearly. I even have the dated piece of paper still. Um, we decided that the next SIGGRAPH, the 84 SIGGRAPH, we were going to announce to the world that we were into character animation. And I set out, now we didn't have John yet, right? So this is me thinking I'm going to do the animation, which now that I look back was a total joke, but I didn't realize it yet. Um, I sat down and I drew uh, one of my terribly crude storyboards about an android named Andre waking up. So this would be our, the articulated character, right? Waking up in a beautiful scene, which we then knew how to render beautiful scenes, you know, trees and grass and rocks and things. And uh, the sun would rise and the android would stand up and yawn and stretch and greet the new world. So it's like, 
animation has arrived was the general idea. Now, if you think about it, this story just sucks. It's just awful. And luckily, that's when John Lasseter, you know, I hired Ed and I hired John Lasseter, and he came in. <laughs> he looked at that, and he says, can I make a few recommendations? I said, yeah, sure. That's why we want you here. Hmm. And he, you know, he says, okay. And then he just sort of took the story and he made the Andre into a little lovable character with shapes, you know, not an android, but shapes. Had a soft, floppy shape. Uh, and he added a B, so it, it have a character to interact with. And um, that was, so the name comes from My Dinner with Andre a movie that we all loved, um, starring Andre, what's Andre's last name, and Wallace Shawn. So my original name for the piece was My Breakfast with Andre. Uh, But because of the new B being added, uh, his name had to be Wally B, the name of Wallace Shawn. Now, let's just name drop a few people that were on this project. So there was John helping you. You had a couple of other guys, Bill Reeves, Rob Cook, Lauren Carpenter. Like, uh, <laughs> it's like not a bad group yeah. of people throwing stuff around. No, here. we Each had a hell of a great team. Yeah. Um, no, the, the group of guys, it's just, you know, the group of people at, uh, at Lucasfilm, and then it was just spectacular. And that's why we couldn't believe that George didn't get it, you know. Well, didn't you think that he'd get it after... After uh, Star Trek, I mean, surely that was a piece. Yeah, that... yeah. We, we, well, in fact, I designed Star Trek for him. I, I, I said I, when I brought the team in, I said, uh, you know, we got our break here. We got this, this uh, sixty seconds in a major motion picture, and it's probably going to be a hit. So this will be it. Um, we're gonna, you know, we're gonna make a piece that'll they'll just love out in the theater, and the producers will love it because it honors the story and the narrative in a first-class way, but what this really is is a 60-second commercial to George Lucas, so I don't know what the hell he's got. And I knew one secret thing about George. What's that? And that was that he doesn't watch movies like the rest of us. He okay. he glues his, his, his attention to the camera. He is always aware of the camera and what it's doing, what the cameraman's decisions are, now, if you you can try this, I, it's really hard to do. Go to a movie and see if you can be aware at all moments of the camera. And frankly, a director has has failed if if you're able to do it. I mean, if you think about it, a director's job is to seduce you into the story mm-hmm. and become unaware of the camera and the technology. But George has the skill of watching the camera, and I knew this. I don't know how I knew it, but I knew it. And uh, I used to watch movies with him. I guess I found out somehow during that movie, but I, I don't recall. Uh, so I said, "Here's what we're going to do. We're going to we're going to put a camera move in this shot, the Genesis demo that you used this expression earlier. will blow George's socks off because he'll know he won't lose track of it, even though it'll be narratively important and people in the audience won't be aware of it because it's narratively important. Uh, he'll be aware of it because that's what he that's who he is." He'll know that no real camera could have possibly have done it, and that'll impress him. And that's what we did, and that's exactly what happened. He came in the day after the premiere and said, he's very shy, he stepped one foot in my office, and he said, great camera.
camera move, and then whoosh, he was gone. <laughs> and we were in his next movie. Uh, sort of, you know, a little bit. But more importantly, we were in Spielberg's, his buddy Spielberg's next movie, and by then, then that meant the word started spreading through Hollywood. Well, on Wondry and Wally B, there's one other person that, look, as an aside, he's not linear to computer graphics, but I was just stunned when I was doing my research for this interview. The, the audio on Andre and Wally B, which I must have known but had completely forgotten, was done by none other than Ben Burt. How the heck did you pull that yeah. off? Because he was already... <laughs> the audio guys, we, our secret, we always thought the secret of our success was the audio. The, the, the sound guys, you know, Ben Burt and Gary Rydstrom in particular, loved what we were doing. And they would just volunteer to give, to put sound to our pieces, invent sounds that we needed, and uh, which is what they were good at, synthesizing sounds. And uh, <laughs> that was uh, that was one of the you know I look back and I think my God there was a lot of luck involved in getting from A to B, but uh, you know that was one of the pieces of luck. We used to say the sound was sixty percent of the movie. It was. Uh, if you'd ever been at a SIDGRAPH and watched somebody present a really great piece of computer animation, Mute, which used to happen back then, you know how important it was to get sound on there because the audience just oh, died. That's absolutely fundamentally important. And we always had great sound. Uh, and that was another one of the reasons our stuff just stood out. Not only was there a great animation by John, who's a natural talent of the first order. You know, he gets paid movie star salaries because he is a movie star. He really is. You can't, you know, we would not be who we were without his skill. He is really good. And he can't tell you why he does what he does, but he does it, and it's magical. Okay, well, before we leave um, Lucasfilm, I do want to touch on one other thing, because legend has it that there were a couple of brothers in another building that somebody asked you to go and have a look at, because they were also working on some paint stuff. Oh, it's the Null Brothers, yeah. The, it was David Francisco that said, hey, Alvy, these, have you... Checking out these old brother guys, they're they're taking they're taking all our stuff, putting it on a Mac, putting it on a I, I don't know whether it was a Mac or a PC, but they were putting it on a small. That PC. was on a Mac, yeah. And I said, who cares? You know, I I, I still have this uh, arrogant notion that the and it was still valid at the time. The little machines were toys; you couldn't <laughs> know any serious graphics on them. And um, so I went, yeah, okay, <laughs> and. Uh, we tracked it. Uh, we tracked the, you know, it was, it was what became Photoshop. Um, they, um, they, uh, let's see, Barney Skin. I think they sold it to Barney Skin first. Yeah, I believe so. And then John Warnock saw it and, and rebranded it Photoshop, and it went from there. Well, now, so in, a, my, my, in a minute, we'll come back to Adobe and uh, the significance of that. But, uh, yeah. but I did want to also say that you, you talked with great love about visiting Disney, so we should flag the fact that at some point you actually got to work with Disney in a very formal sense because was it had you moved yeah. away from Lucasfilm when you got to do the cap system? No, no, no. That was part of Lucasfilm. Right. It was complete. It started at Lucasfilm, finished at Pixar. Um, Just tell everyone what that was. Things, caps was, you know, early on. Well, first of all, back at New York Tech, we had built a. And at the scan and paint system, we called it, where you, it was basically a digital version of cell animation. We uh, would scan in the drawings from the animators, and that would be the end of the input of the artist. And then we'd take over digitally, clean up the scans, uh, 
fill in the colors, do the layering and the filming, so to speak, uh, all on the computer. And we actually made a short piece called Measure for Measure. With this, it was a television, you know, 22 minute television piece uh, using scan and paint. So we knew how to do Disney style animation on a computer. And that's what Ed and I would try to sell to Disney because that's what they did, right? Uh, But they didn't buy until a month after Eisner and Wells took over Disney. Finally, Disney Disney management wised up that the company was going into the tubes and they brought in new management. They kicked off the old management and brought in Roy Disney was part of this uh, uh, revitalization of the company. He still owned a big chunk of Disney, 5% or so, and he uh, um, helped bring in Eisner and Well to save Disney. And within a month, Eisner and Wells were knocking on our door saying, let's do what you guys always said you could do. We We don't want the only way we can save animation at Disney is to go overseas, and we won't do that because we'll lose quality control. And we'd always told them, we can we can improve your quality and lower your costs a great deal by going digital, which we did. And we uh, it took me 18 months to negotiate the deal with them, very hard negotiators. But uh, finally, it, it, we got it, and... Uh, we got it I, just, uh, just about the time that we were spinning Pixar out and it went with the new company as part of the deal. Okay, so, so somewhere... We completed... And, 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 and I believe I've seen a photo of that, like uh, did you holding a check, I think, for a million dollars. of uh, with a, I don't know what the extra... Yeah, was, I, was, but... <laughs> I don't know if you can tell or not, but in that photo, I'm sicker than a dog. Oh, really? I, had a, I, was, I was just so sick. I had the flu or something. But I wasn't about to miss that moment, you know. I was, <laughs> I'm standing under a tapestry of Mickey Mouse, and uh, they wanted Frank Wells, I think, to come out and shake my hand, but he just never could get off the phone. So uh, Roy, I think, shaking my hand, yeah, right? Roy, Roy Disney, Disney or, yeah. Which God, is I had me frankly... a check from the first million dollars for a multi-million dollar deal, and that was the first check, you know, into the new company. It was a big deal. Okay, now let's. And that we, so we that um, well, I, I want to talk about that because that was the deal that made Disney and Pixar love each other. We both sides performed well above the Call of Duty, came in sooner than promised, at a lower price than promised, and the quality was better than promised. So everything about it was a sweetheart deal, and we had both companies had great admiration for each other from then on. And it really helped Disney with its traditional animated films, which in that it was the... Oh, it saved them. It at, saved at them. At that time, they were the high point of... Uh, it was a real renaissance going on in, in Disney's uh, 2D cell, but most people didn't realize that it were computer-rated at that No, point. in fact, Disney didn't let us tell people that we did it. Uh, they kept making it a secret. We kept, I kept taking them and said, well, why? You know, I, I learned about it. They said, well, the magic will go away if people find out that computers are involved. I said, no, it won't. <laughs> Not the art. This is the grunt. You know, this is the. I learned about animation by watching Walt Disney on television when I was a kid. Tell us how it was done. You know, you just tell people how it's done. They'll love it. Doesn't take away from the magic of the movies. 
And they they hid it for many years. But the critics started saying, gee, there's something really different about the movies all of a sudden from Disney. You know what a multiplane camera is? Yes, sir. Well, we let them put a multiplane camera shot in every shot. Whereas up to that point, the multiplane camera, could only, it was so expensive mm. that it could only be used for like an opening to Pinocchio and you know, it took down the whole power grid of Burbank when they did it. It was only good to five layers, and it was incredibly expensive. And with CAPS technology, which stands for Computer Animation Production System, by the way, uh, you can put a unbounded number of levels into a multiplane shot in every scene. And as soon as the directors figured that out, that's what they did. So there were just multiplane shots at every, and it gave this sense of 3D to the 2D movies that they'd never had before, except in an occasional, you know, opening shot. Yeah, it really, it really helped uh, with this tremendous renaissance. It's a shame that it wasn't quite recognized. I think a lot of us knew word had got out, but it was definitely a yeah. high point in compositing and, uh, and as you say, computer aided really uh, animation because it was still the animators yeah. that were hand drawing a lot of the stuff that uh, fed into that. You could you could argue, in fact, that Red Cures Down Under was the first digital movie. I don't because the art wasn't done on the computer, but, but everything some, else was. And it had some really amazing camera moves as a as a consequence. Yeah, yeah. Now, if we Do jump you know to about Monkey, to what sir? Do you know about Monkey? Uh, no, sir. It's, it's a lot of people don't know that we almost did a feature length film at Lucasfilm. Really? Uh, yeah, it was going to be called Monkey. Monkey is a very famous character in Asia. Oh, is this the Japanese project that that uh, was rumored for something? That's right, with Shogun. So this company, this giant printing company called Shogun in Japan, came to us. They wanted to find a project that their heir apparent could, you know, could shepherd into production that would be so impressive that it would show, you know, his father and the, the board that he was capable of taking over the company and leading it into the future. And they came to us and asked us if they, if you know, if we could turn monkey, the monkey stories, into a feature. And we thought this was it. It seemed to be the right time. And uh, we were at John board, of course. And uh, I love Monkey. I'd, I'd known about Monkey for years and brought Monkey books back from China, where, where I'd gone in 1978, and was thrilled at, you know, at this chance. And we got a long ways into it. We had storyboards, and we met story meetings with the Japanese and Carmel, the fancy resorts. And we, you know, we got a long ways along the path and started sending out marketing, uh, hiring marketers to help help us and. Then I, then I got to the point where I needed to cost it out to see how much you know the deal would have to be, and I sat down. I started running the numbers, and somewhere in the middle of the running the numbers, I, it, it finally dawned on me that Moore's Law hadn't cranked far enough yet. This was still going to cost fifty million dollars when twenty million dollars was the top amount of money anybody would put into the production cost of the movie. And I, in order to save face for the young heir apparent, I pull the plug. That must have been a hard call. It, it, it wasn't because it really was too soon. You know, the, the cost of the computation was still too high. We had to wait, well, we had to wait five more years. <laughs> Moore's Law says, 
you need to take this down order of magnitude, that's five more years. So we waited five more years, and that's when Toy Story started. In, but it also meant in, we had to build hardware in order to support ourselves for the first several years of uh, Pixar. Let me just discuss that, because in February of 86, there are four kind of leather-bound sets of um, contracts that Three. are... Three. Three, sorry. But, but there are four yeah. sets of them, right? There are... I think there are five or six sets. There's one. I had one. Ed has one. Steve Jobs one. George Lucas one. And your attorneys. Uh, the I think. attorneys. So that's what five. Okay. And so this is. So let's just explain this because uh, that it, we need to sort of maybe help uh, help you in clearing the the mythology a little. Steve Jobs yeah. didn't go to George Lucas and buy Pixar from George. George didn't sell it directly all. to Steve. Tell us what happened. No. Well, if you read the buying, binding of the founding documents, it says that uh, Lucasfilm sold the Pixar technology to, uh, to Steve. Uh, so Steve bought, actually he sold it to this new this spinoff company called Pixar. Uh, but Steve paid for it. So in a sense, uh, Steve paid $5 million to George Lucas for the technology rights that he then put into the new company. And he also put in $5 million more for capitalization of the new company. And because his investment, because he was the money, he came away with majority ownership. But he didn't buy it. He he. It's a pretty standard spin-out funding uh, method. Now, he'd, he'd, he, he already he's, spun he's out next? Had he already spun out next at this point? Was he still at Apple? He had been kicked out of Apple by this point. Right. And he hadn't started next yet. And so uh, the, I think we were right in the, right in the cracks there. He, next might have been underway, just getting underway at the same time. It, it certainly happened very soon afterwards. But, um, so, you I mean, he had come to us, to hit me, uh, before, and wanted, after he'd been kicked out of Apple and proposed to us that he buy us and run us. And we said, no, we want to run it ourselves, but we'll take your money. So, sorry, just and, to clear uh, that up, the first, whoever, who was the first person to kind of meet Steve? Did Steve just literally approach you guys, or, I mean, how did that first happen? No, it went, let's see, I met him once at a design conference in, at Stanford University, chatted with him a little bit, and then the next time I met him, he had come, Alan Kay was one of my supporters at Xerox Park, and he had become Steve Jobs's Apple's chief scientist. Yeah, he's an incredible he, guy, Alan Kay. Yeah, he is. He's, a, he's one of the great guys. And he brought Steve up to to, to us at Lucasfilm to show Steve what the best computer graphics looked like. And Steve was still at Apple, and I remember that he, he got up on him and, and showed how much money he had made at Apple, and we were totally impressed because we didn't understand you know, what it meant yet. And because uh, Alan Kay kind of had to prompt us that we, we should be impressed by this. Uh, nothing came of that. And then shortly after that, uh, Steve got booted out of Apple. And then he got in touch with us. Ed, he invited Ed and me and our uh, financial guy. 
a financial guy. I think his name was a Cheek Gill. Down to his Woodside Mansion. And we spent an afternoon at the mansion listening to Steve. Well, he was really bitter about having been booted out of Apple. And he, he, I remember we sat down on the grass and he proposed that he buy us and run us. And we, that's when we said, no, that's not what we want. We did not really want to run this ourselves, but we're, we're looking for money. We'd love to have him put in money. And, um, I'm a little fuzzy on exactly the sequence here, but, uh, I, I think we had already gotten to the point where Ed and I knew that George had lost half his fortune and therefore we needed to spin Pixar out. We didn't call it Pixar yet. We needed to spin this company out to save save being fired and keep the group together. And uh, um, Steve came in, did run the idea that we wanted, you know, the funding idea past Lucasfilm, but it was a really low number. Uh, and Lucasfilm just laughed at it because it was so low because they had a much better deal in the works with General Motors' Ross Perot, uh-huh. um, which almost came to fruition. It got really close. So Ed and I, once we decided, you know, I, uh, I was the one that said, look, Ed, George never really got us. He just lost half his fortune in the divorce. He can't afford us anymore. He's going to fire us. Let's start a company. And uh, it's yeah, let's do that. We went across the street to a bookstore. I and mean, you got to remember, there's a couple of computer nerds. <laughs> we didn't have a business bone in our body, right? And we said, uh, we bought How to Start Company books. You bought two and I bought two. <laughs> so how, to start <laughs> a, how to start a company for dummies kind of thing. But it worked. You know, we did it. But we... Uh, we had to do it in, in uh, conjunction with Lucasfilm because we were still part of Lucasfilm. Mm. So they, we went to every venture capitalist on Sand Hill Road, that's the famous location of venture capitalists in Silicon Valley, and we just didn't have the right deal. We went about 15 of them, and we could get in. A lot of people can't get in, but we could get in because we had we were sexy. We were part of Lucasfilm, but we didn't have the right. We weren't the right. We didn't set the formula of this startup that venture capitalists were looking for. We had 40 guys, you know, 40 employees, and we had a prototype already. And it just, they couldn't, we were past the seed financing stage, and nothing happened, but, except it did. And I got to meet a lot of venture capitalists and, and practiced our, you know, built up our business skills. I'm sure it was a great education. And then we tried strategic partnerships with, with large corporations. And uh, none of those worked except General Motors. Uh, General Motors, Ross Perot had this company called EDS, which I think stands for Electronic Data Systems. Yep, I remember that. Which had been absorbed by and merged with General Motors. So Perot is now part of General Motors. And General Motors, this, this part of General Motors, EDS, Rose Park, thought we'd be a good fit at General Motors for designing cars, rendering cars, you know, so people could see what cars would look like before they were built, which we could have done. And uh, so they and Phillips of the Netherlands almost closed the deal with us in Lucasfilm. It got so close that everybody thought it was a done deal. We were in a... Uh, 
huge executive boardroom on the 40-something floor of the Phillips Building in downtown Manhattan. And I remember it was one of the most stressfully excruciating days of my life because my future was being decided, and it was 20 people at the table, half lawyers, and and the the, the discussions were interminable. And eventually we logged jam once. I remember we just couldn't get past a certain deal point. And I saw, I still remember watching in deep pain, stress pain, I watched my attorney, the one that Ed and I had, Gordy Davidson, reach into his mind and pull out a solution that freed up the log jam. And uh, I was so impressed that when I started my second company later, I made him my attorney. Uh, and it came to a point in a negotiation where everybody was saying yes, which in business is a done deal to within signing the papers that the attorneys still have to write up. So I got that close. But that very day, Perot was uptown Manhattan telling the board of directors they were a bunch of fools for having bought used tools. And that news broke the next morning in the Wall Street Journal, and anything that had to do with Perot and General Motors was dead. And that wow. meant our deal was dead overnight. Thank God. <laughs> I thought Steve Jobs was trouble. <laughs> he would have ruined us, I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> when you, when and you, when you, so that's when that's when Ed and I said, well, you know, the deal. That's that was Lucasfilm's last great hope for thirty something million, I think, twenty thirty million, twenty five thirty million, something like that. We did what probably is unethical. We called up Steve and said, "Make your move, Steve. Bring the number in again because we're desperate. They're desperate. If something doesn't happen now, it's not going to happen." So he did. He, he financed us. Uh, at that point. And so that's when, the deal that's written up in those three volumes. So when you form Pixar, if you don't mind me saying yeah. so, you're actually the oldest guy in the room, right? Steve Jobs is only 33. You're about 45. Ed's just yeah. about the same age. He's um, slightly younger than me, yeah. And that board of directors has Steve as the chairman, Ed as president, you're as vice president. I think you had a manufacturing, a sales guy, and a, and a, a CFO. Eventually, at first, eventually, at first it was just the three of us, but as we added VPs, uh, they they were added to the board. And that 40 employees yeah, you referred to, that 40 employees includes legends like Lauren Carpenter, obviously you guys, but also uh, Rob Cook, David DeFrancesco, uh, John Lasseter, of course, um, yeah. Tom Porter, Bill Reeves. Yeah. Uh, that is yeah. the nucleus that was Pixar. But just you've got to tell yeah. me the name. You said it wasn't called Pixar. We're, we're, I mean, uh, I assume... didn't have a name. We, you, we, had a hardest, we had such a hard time choosing names. Uh, because we were such a collegiate outfit that we didn't want to choose a name that, it, uh, you know, Ed and I just wouldn't dictate what the name would be. We wanted a name that everybody agreed to. So we let, opened it up to everybody to suggest names. And you know what? We couldn't get even two people to agree on any one name. <laughs> I think if two people had come in supporting one name, that would have been it. And we've been through this already because we couldn't come up with a name for the computer division at Lucasfilm. We tried for years to come up with a name for our division, and nobody could settle on it. So we just left the computer division, which is really boring. <laughs> so we, then we needed to name this new company, and the same thing happened. Nobody, no two people could agree on the name. So finally, in desperation, I might have used GFX to, as a placeholder. It right. seems like I used that name for a while, uh, but it's just a placeholder. 
And but it came to time when we had to go to the Secretary of State for our corporation papers. You have to have a name. So I said, "Well, you know, we have this Pixar image computer, and everybody's associating the name Pixar now with us. Why don't we just use the name Pixar?" And everybody went, oh, "Okay." Grumple, you know, nobody was excited about it, but there wasn't a better solution. So that's how Pixar became the name. The Pixar, the Pixar image computer was used in medical imaging. This was not just a computer graphics box. This was a an image processor. Was, we, we called it a supercomputer for images. It was a really fast computer at the time, programmable computer, but designed specifically for images because it had a Basically, the RGB and alpha channels all ran in parallel, so you could get immense speeds out of speed ups out of the thing if it were aimed at images. And so we sold a lot of them to medical imaging. Uh, we sold a lot to three, four, and five letter agencies who always in Washington who didn't tell us what they did and <laughs> would pick up the machine in a parking lot. A guy named Mr. Brown would pick up the machine in the parking lot. So. And then Disney was our biggest customer for the CAPS project. Excellent. So, so now, this is what's sustaining the company, basically making hardware, not making films, because <laughs> 86 is this deal, and it's going to be until not until 95. When, when did Toy Story come out? Um, 95? Yeah. Yeah, it was big so nine years. So, yeah, we, we, you know, why did we fail again and again and again and again? You made commercials, uh, though, right? You did commercials. We made work? commercials. We sold machines. We sold software. You know, render man licenses. Uh, we did anything. We just tried anything we could to uh, to make money, and it, it wasn't good enough. We, if we had been a normal company, we would have failed many times over, because it, we frequently got to the point where we couldn't pay the bills. That's failure. Except in our case, we had Steve Jobs who. Since he had been uh, booted out, you know, ignominiously out of Apple, could not sustain the embarrassment of his first investment failing. So he would tear tear Ed and me up emotionally, you know, personally, but he would always write a check to pay for the losses and take some of the equity away. I must admit, I've been in startup, I've been in companies where I've been through that exact loop, which was, but I've been in them twice, where if you don't yeah. make it, if you can't make payroll, you can make it because a, an investor comes up with the money and each time it costs you an extra bit of equity, but it's yeah. either that or you don't make payroll and it's a, it's, it's a hard decision, it's but also it. it's, a, yeah. it's a one that, you know, you don't have many options on, but that's how it rolls. Yeah. And in fairness, and we were you know, we wanted to keep the group together, so that was our goal. We were really more into making the movie than making money. We were yeah. just not built, you know, that kind of, we so we were capitalists because we had to be, basically. And uh, so over the course of several years, Steve ended up putting fifty million bucks. He started out with ten million in us, you know, five million for the software rights from Lucasfilm and five million dollars cash into us, and then after several years he had put Fifty million bucks, which is half his fortune, into us. And I must say, when he when he decided to take it public, it was an extraordinarily ballsy move because no one. It was one of the. There's a there's the most brilliant thing that Steve did, in my opinion. He he took that felt the company public on just sheer chutzpah. Yeah. Because of the sex appeal of the of the movie, 
and they had no money in the bank. And uh, it's you know it's just a brilliant move when you look at it in hindsight. I can't believe he got away with it, but he did. <laughs> I uh, I bought some uh, yeah, shares. No, he's I bought... a great businessman. I don't I don't chop him on that at all. I bought know? a small number of shares in Pixar in the early days. It was great. You guys used to keep on sending me uh, in those cases VHSs and posters. The shareholders, we really got treated well. <laughs> <laughs> but when when did you leave yeah. Pixar? I left in ninety one or two somewhere in there. Just after I knew that Toy Story was going to be a go, I got myself out because I didn't want to be around the guy anymore. Uh, that... Steve Jobs. The, the, uh, he and I had a terrible blow up, and I just didn't like him at all anymore, and didn't want him in my life. So I found a way out by starting another. I spun a company out of Pixar, and uh, with him as an investor, believe it or not, money-wise, he always did good by me. <laughs> it's just uh, on the personality side, I thought he was a bully and a tyrant and a liar. So the the rumor has it that you actually had an, a, a fight over a whiteboard. Is there any truth? Yeah, in that it's rumor? not a rumor. It was a, it was it's. It's in. I think it's in the new book. Has a really blow by blow description of it. It's, okay. Uh, so he, and I, he uh, I can tell you again if you want to hear it. It's it's a pretty amazing story uh, because sure. it caught me by surprise. You know, he he and I always had a um, strained relationship because he would say things that weren't true, and I would call him on it. And that just was the nature of our relationship. So it got to be the point where he would always, he would say something outrageous that he'd look over at me and see if I was going to object. And that's okay. You know, that, that worked as long as I got my say. But one day at a board meeting, something changed and I still don't know what it was. He said he was busting at me for being late on one of our boards for the big his computer. And I said, but Steve, you're late on one of your boards for the next, which is all true. And at that point, he, you know, he's standing up in front of the whiteboard, which only he could use, by the way. That was not a written rule. And he came over to me sitting down and started screaming in my face and insulting me, my Southwestern accent. And he just became a street bully. I had never been treated that way in my life and never have been since. And I reacted in full animal fury, which still amazes me. I didn't, you know, not, not ever having been there, I didn't, didn't, uh, wasn't prepared, right? Sure. So I, I went into full bull rage. And so he and I are screaming at each other in full bull rage, just a few inches apart. And then somewhere in the heat of that battle, I don't even remember what we're, you know what it was. But he was insulting me, and I was just back in his face. I don't know what I was saying. I was so enraged, crazy, crazy with rage. And uh, I stood up and marched past him and wrote on the whiteboard. And he said, you, you, you can't do that. And I said, what, write on the whiteboard? At which point he stormed out of the room. So I, you know, in retrospect, I look back, and it was clear to me that he expected me to fold in front of all those people to show his power, and I didn't do it. And um, which might have been, might have been foolish on my part, but that's what happened, you know. And um, after that, I didn't want him. I didn't want him anywhere near me because I'd seen how I reacted to him, and I saw that he was basically a bully. And um, didn't want him there anymore. So clearly, 
he had all the power and money. It's up to me to leave. And, you know, it took me a year to put together uh, another company. And I wanted to be sure that the first movie was underway. And then uh, I did put together another company. And long story short, he put 10% into it, which... Which that last part is kind of extraordinary to me that, that uh, I guess you just patched things up or there was so much history there, but you were, you needed to get away from him and and then he, uh, he invested in your company. Yeah. You know, he tried to renege on my departure. Uh, It's it's a lot of, there are a lot of ugly details I won't go into now. It was really ugly, but uh, the bottom line was, you know, if you just look at the bottom line, he, he did right by us financially. Now, the details are not pretty. Like he, It sounds like he stuck with us through thick and thin until we got the movie made, and he became a billionaire. But actually, he would have bailed at any time if somebody had stepped forward with $50 million. I, I know because I wrote many business plans for, for that purpose. And uh, nobody would step forward with $50 million. Now, the joke is that Disney could have bought us for $50 million for any time. It would have been a lot cheaper than when they did buy it. <laughs> $7.4 billion. So, uh, Tell me, what was the, the you know, second it, company? What was the, the new company you went to? It, it was called Altamira Software, and it was an imaging, image compositing uh, piece of software for the PC. And uh, Microsoft snapped it up. I, I wasn't in the market two months before Microsoft snapped it up. And uh, so the money that came in for that 10% was some of the cash that Pixar went public on <laughs> pretty amazing story altogether. So before, and, uh, before we go any further with yeah. that, I think I should back up because I think we've stepped over the first of the two key patent lawsuits in your uh, in your sphere, which was the Space Ward one, because that would have happened when you were still at Pixar? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think so. Now... Let's see. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah, because that would have been like what I think. I think the yeah, space I, was Gary Hecker went with me. Gary Hecker went with me to England, and he was Pixar's patent attorney. Yeah, right. that's right. So I'm still at Pixar. Yeah. So I, I, I'm one of that generation of uh, people that really actually resented this, and I was only on the sidelines <laughs> as a user. Uh, but it seems after everything we've discussed up until this point, it just I, I, I still find it hard to even say these words that you lost, or you didn't lose, but Space Ward lost, uh, a patent infringement that claimed that the paint system hadn't been developed until it was invented by Quantel. And and obviously that is the ruling that was passed down by the English courts. But yeah, and we were, we were flabbergasted because it was obvious that that wasn't true. But I think this is a case where, you know, the, 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 uh, the other side just outmaneuvered Space Ward in the court by... Uh, and it wasn't just By you that was testifying. Told. Jim Blinn testified as well. A whole bunch of people. Yeah, but, yeah, a bunch of people. Lance Williams. Uh, yeah, this was. Uh, this was. Uh, we just couldn't believe it that that justice could, justice could go so wrong. And then I was angry because I was officially branded a liar. Uh, and not only that, but the poor companies, several companies, went out of business because of it. Uh, so I think it was seen by the community as more of an indictment of the patent system than it was uh, any indication of anyone lying. I, don't, I never heard anyone articulate that sentiment that you guys lied. Um, it, no, I never no, heard that. To me, it was not lie. It was just that if, 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 if what you say you did is, is, is uh, deemed not valid, then that's a lie, isn't it? You're called a liar. 
I the think that you like. well, but I think the implication was for the entire community that there was something wrong with the patent system. Is really what the indication was. Well, that's what we all said. No, we just said no. This is crazy. This is the, the you know it's the the old the old the old judge. It was his last case. The barrister who could have won the case for Spaceward, his time clock ran out at the month, and the other side waited till his month was up, and then and then the new barrister came in who was a kid who didn't know how to handle. The old judge, and it was all over. But the the yeah. the sort of companion piece to that is that there's a second round, which is Quantel versus Adobe Paint, which is 1997, which now is is a different sort of uh, kettle altogether. Because this second case, this the 97 one, I'm right that actually transpired not in the UK but in the US, and in fact was the exact reverse outcome. Can you tell us about that? Sure. That was John Warnock, and I had been at uh, Xerox Park together, and he and his partner Chuck Belt, uh, 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 yeah, Chuck Chuck Gelsky, come on, what's his last? Anyhow, Chuck uh, came to me and uh, said, you know, Quantel's uh, uh, coming after us in the states now for Photoshop, and they wanted, I think it was a twenty-five dollar royalty on every copy on every copy of Photoshop that had been sold, and on everyone to be sold. You know, it was going to be, you know, they estimated to be a $400 million hit. Would I help them? Uh, and, and I said, well, yes, I will, if you promise me that you'll take it all the way to, the, to a decision and then that you really prepare the case well. Because I had seen what legal shenanigans could do. Uh, I said, you know, this is going to... And John assured me that he would take it to decision. Now, the, the CEO of a corporation really doesn't have to do that, right? He just has to protect his company. Yeah. But he promised me personally that he would, that he would take it to decision, and that they would prepare, that they would have a first-rate case. And that's exactly what he did, uh, what, what Adobe did. They they prepared, it seems like it was two years maybe we prepared. And... Uh, now, did it did it probably not hurt that the year before that? So this is ninety seven. In ninety six, you got was that your first or your second Technical Academy Award for pioneering digital image compositing? You got two, right? Was that the first or the I second? The uh, first one was for paint. The second one for compositing. I like was ninety eight. I think I got. I don't remember. So like I have to check it. Yeah. So you you'd been awarded by this stage Emmys. Uh, obviously, Sidgraph. Uh, you know, awards and now technical Oscars. Um, and luckily, not only that, but of course the combined help of everybody else that testified and what seemed to be a really committed legal team actually defeated what all five of the apparent technical violations Quantel yeah. deemed to. Yeah. And they even found, they even suggest, the jury suggested that, that Quantel be found guilty of fraud of the U.S. patent system too. But the judge threw that part out. And of course, this saved Adobe hundreds of millions of dollars in royalties, and yeah. maybe maybe changed the course of Photoshop. Tell me, what is your position yeah. today on software patents? Because I know that you argued uh, in the first case, the Spaceward case, that the there was an apparent lack of understanding of the fact that things could easily move between software and hardware, and the fact that someone implemented something in hardware was just what people did if they chose to uh, settle yeah. on an algorithm. What's your opinion today on software? Uh, patents. Do you support the? I, I basically, I, you know, I, if a patent is given for what I think the patents are say they're given for, which is 
ideas not obvious to those practiced in the art, I have no problem with them. But it's these trivial patents that we, we were just deluged with trivial patents, things that are so obvious to people practiced in the art that I couldn't believe that they had courage enough to submit the patents. And then the patent office would issue them because they don't know, you know, what's obvious and what's not. Uh, leaving it up to the court system, which doesn't have the bandwidth to really do the settling. So I, I, I think the patent system, at least as it was used for many years there, was just a joke. However, I used to add that we at Pixar did use the patent system once when we, you know, I didn't want my guys to use the patent system unless they really, really had something not obvious to those practiced in the art. And finally, my guys came to me with the solution for motion blur, and it was a beautiful solution, not obvious to those practiced in the art, namely all the other people in computer graphics, even inside Pixar, uh, Lucasfilm Pixar. And uh, I said, okay, let's go for that one. That's a serious, that's, uh, that's a game changer. And... I knew that it was not obvious to those practices in the art because Ed Catmull couldn't do it. Ed, uh, Ed, Ed had always wanted to to uh, solve motion blur. We knew if we didn't solve motion blur, we could never make the movie. And uh, he he uh, worked on it for years. And finally, he set up an internal, and this is a good indication of Ed's leadership abilities, I think. Um, he He set up a contest inside our group for who, you know, I don't know what the prize was, but, you know, <laughs> prestige, I guess, uh, for solving the hit surface problem. And I'm sure he thought he'd solve it, but he didn't. It was a, uh, a uh, it was um, Pat Hanrahan and uh, Lauren and Rob, I think, who did it. Uh, beautiful solution that actually solved a lot of other problems in addition to motion blur. Just gorgeous solution. Uh, and we got a patent on that which has served Pixar well. In fact, when I went to Microsoft, when Microsoft bought my second company, uh, part of the deal was I got golden handcuffs. You know, they, they, I had to work at Microsoft for four and a half years so my stock would vest. Um, they hauled me in and tried to get me to bust those patents. And I said, you can't. So what do you mean? I said, well, these are... These are really good patents. Yeah, this is a really good patent. It's not the whole idea was it it was so it was so clever that you know you couldn't just easily get around it. I remember very distinctly 1984 the the uh, the billiard ball shot with spectacular motion. Yeah, was that that? Yeah, was that the one that happened? Right. That was such a beautiful picture, wasn't it? Oh my god! Yeah, used to blow people away with that picture. Um, I would put it up, and then I would I would say, oh. By the way, this is this is computer generated, and I'd get a gasp. Then I'd zoom in on the floor ball. I'd go into the ball and say, "Look at the, you know, here's a guy holding a pool cue, and yep. here's the beer, there's signs, and everybody would just be gasping all over the place." <laughs> it was, <laughs> that was a beautiful, beautiful piece by Tom. Yeah, uh, and uh, well, so the, on the patent, but uh, so Microsoft hauled, and they didn't trust me because you know I worked for Pixar, founded Pixar, so they. Called in Jim Cugio, one of the great, great stars of computer graphics, who was working at Microsoft at that time, and said, "Help us bust this." He says, "I, I, I, I can't. I couldn't." And here's one of the smartest guys in computer graphics telling that he couldn't do it. The guys who solved it at Pixar really did an amazing thing. 
So now, so that was it. One of the periods and, that and, and so, and so I want to face that Microsoft paid uh, several million dollars for the licensee, and that also went into the IPO cash plan <laughs> for Pixar. Because I was going to say, one of the things I wanted to do is draw a thread because we talked about the fact that you published back at SIDGRAPH that that seminal tutorial on paint. And in fact, it seems to me that that and obviously it's from Ed and from yourself, this is an, an entire cultural thing, this idea of not being secretive, of giving back to the community, of supporting SIDGRAPH, of uh, really publishing and promoting publishing and for that matter, even you know selling Render Man when the time came. There's just a million things you could point to. Uh, you guys just seem committed to furthering the industry, and even talking to you today, I just get this from you. This must have been a central thing for you always, this idea of education and, and, and building off each other. Well, you know, we came from academia. I think that's the, what is the telling thing, is we, we were always uh, collegiate, like academia, academicians are. Uh, you share, you build, you know, there's competition, but you, you share with each other, and your glory is not dollars, it's credits. And uh, we hired people like that. And, you know, all of our, you know, Bill Reeves and uh, a, lot, a lot of the people we hired were from from at PhDs and were from the academy like like we were. And their their pay was to publish when they had ideas and get the glory from their peers. And we knew that to keep to attract that kind of talent. We needed to make it comfortable for them to know that not every there were some things we held back because they were key. But in general, we let things go forward and go public because that's how we attracted the best people in the world. It was one of our secrets. So I thought one of our secrets was don't be afraid to hire smarter than ourselves and and don't hold back unless it's just fundamentally key to uh, to a deal. On you know on publishing, and we got we got superstars that way. So we, we've, we're running out of time, and I've, you've been incredibly generous with talking to us. I just did want to touch on two other things. Firstly, I don't know as much about your time at Microsoft as I've managed to find out about your other periods. Um, is there some aspect of your time at Microsoft that we should uh, touch on before we move on? Because there is one other subject I want to get to really quickly before we finish. I I don't think so. My uh, Microsoft, uh, the only thing I'd like to say about Microsoft is, you know, I, I thought I was going to hate it when I got inside because it was always presented as the, the the ugly empire, the evil empire. Well, especially by Steve and Jobs. I, <laughs> well, that's the thing I discovered when I got inside is that Microsoft is is a bunch of geeks who don't really care about their image, right? They're, they're smart, and if you don't get it that they're smart, the heck with you. And so, they, in other words, they left up left their image-making to guys like Steve Jobs instead of doing it themselves because they weren't any good at it and didn't care about it. And, uh, of course, <laughs> the outside world paying them this horrible company. They weren't. I got inside and was astonished at how well-run that company is. In fact, it's, it's, it's the most, it has the best process for software development I ever encountered anywhere. It's just awesome. And it, it was, they had, Programmers that were first rate, despite what I'd heard before, they only had lousy programmers. They had innovation that was first rate, despite I'd heard the fact there was never any innovation. And um, they tested everything, despite the fact that I always heard they never tested anything. They tested from the get go, and they, they did top top down software design. They turned they took my ideas into five products during the five years that I was there. 
you want to give one a year. Idea? I mean, that's an amazing product. You know, the level. Can you tell us those products? Excuse me. C- could you list the product? This? Yeah. Oh, well, let's see, the picture it series and then the digital imaging series and uh, basically anything to do with imaging came out of, built on what I brought in there. Now, the sad thing is they, they when I left, they dropped it all. So, they, like I said, they're really not an imaging company. What I thought they were going to do was compete with Photoshop, but they went, they bent over backwards not to compete with Adobe because they were sick of being called the giant evil competitor. Much to my disappointment, because I thought I did have a Photoshop eater. I did, but um, they 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 didn't want to do that. So, so the last thing I wanted to touch on, uh, because I've admired it, is the work you did in digital photography, and and we know you so much as the sort of uh, father or godfather of paint systems, compositing, uh, everything we've discussed. But for the last decade or so, I've seen that you've really had an incredibly amazing journey with photography. Do you want to tell us about that? Yeah, well, you know, I've always loved photography. It's, uh, you know, I guess it's obvious. It's kind of the business I was in. And we always knew that digital was going to take over. The astonishing thing to me is that we used to go to uh, Kodak and say, what are you guys going to do when there's no film anymore? And they would say, there will always be a need for film. And we would just be flabbergasting. Here's a giant corporation that doesn't get it. Digital's going to take them. And I think they went bankrupt last year, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. They, they just didn't get it. You know, we could sit there with just, how many people have to tell you this is what, this is what. So as soon as the first digital camera that I thought was a professional quality was built, and I, it was the Nikon D1, I snapped it up. It, even though now it looks kind of crude, it was a one megapixel, you know, more or less. I think it was one and a half megapixels, maybe something like that. It, it had all the great glass with it, and it was a serious camera. And I started taking pictures with it, and I realized, man, this is this is it. You know, film is over. And I started showing my ph- photography friends. I was living in Seattle at the time, and I would show my photography friends this, and they would say, I don't know, Alvy. I remember one guy had a. He was a Leica expert. He had his Leica hanging around his neck all the time, and he was covered with masking tape, and he caressed it while he's talking to you. He was so <laughs> intimate with his, his Leica. <laughs> and I, I hesitated to even bring the subject up, but I said, hey, why don't you come in and, to my my office here? I want to show you some pictures uh, made with a digital camera. And uh, he went, I don't know. But so he followed me in, and I showed him some, several prints, and then all of a sudden I saw something click in his eyes, and he said, how much, you know, I'm showing a print that's probably, uh, uh, I don't know, 12 by 16 or something like mm-hmm. that, print, color print. He said, how much does this print cost you? And I went, well, I don't know, dollar, dollar and a half for the piece of paper. <laughs> you know, inside every artist, there's a business man, right? I can see the dollar <laughs> signs clicking his eyeballs, you know, because he's used to taking the film down to a lab. 10 or $15 later, he gets the print this size, and it may not be any good. And he said, where'd you print? I said, right there on that printer. <laughs> and then about a month later, I spot him at an art, art glass opening. And he sheepishly comes over to me and he says, you know, Ali, I bought two digital cameras and I can't stop making pictures. <laughs> and one by one, they started to fall like that once they discovered that, you know, this is, this is it. So my, I guess my favorite trip was I, I went to Tanzania with my new digital camera and just flip people out because I'm, 
I took thousands of photographs, and uh, people, you know, now it's almost commonplace to get those great photographs, and everybody knows about it. But at the time, people still didn't know that how wonderful digital was going to be. And two thousand shots of Tanzania would be kind of expensive on film. Oh, and my friend. Uh, um, Bob Cadillac, who went with me on that trip, I took my family and my friend Bob, had a film camera with him. And he took just as many pictures as I did. But something was wrong. You know, I, he, some light was leaking or something like that. He didn't know when he got back to the States that every single picture was ruined. <gasps> oh, dear. I knew that evening what had worked and what hadn't worked. In fact, one of the surprising things was, you know, we're on safari and we had this safari team that would cook the meals and do the tents and all that, and they would gather around every night in sheer delight when uh, bring out the laptop and show the, the day's shots. And it finally hit me that they had never seen the animals in their own parks while they're busy on safari because the Right, of course. Aren't made until the guy gets back to America or England or where he's from. Plus, you had like what a two hundred mil. You had a two hundred mil lens with a doubler, and it wasn't even. It was the equivalent of like about a six hundred mil, right? If I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I had a doubler. Yeah, right. And 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 oh man, they were flipped out. They would just gather around. They got to see their own animals. Extra added thrill. So you could see the world kind of shift there a little bit. So uh, yeah, I I'm a collector of photography as well. I. I, uh, when I finally came into money, you know, I started collecting some of the great, great prints that I have in my house. I just love photographs. So we're talking to you now. You've just come back from New Zealand, New York, New Mexico. What, what are you doing these days? Anything you like, I imagine, but. <laughs> <laughs> I'm writing a book. I'm writing a book. I'm also my entourage for my wife. She's a best-selling author and prophet Berkeley. And, uh, she was down in New Zealand, for example, giving the Rob Lecture Series this year. And uh, that was why we were in New Zealand. What a wonderful place that is. It is. And, uh, we, we like that neck of the woods. <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> my, some, my, uh, couple of my friends just moved there and didn't ever come back. You know, I, I called one of them up, Steve Usfield. He used to work at Pixar with me. And I said, well, why are you down here? He lives on the South Island. I said, he said, well, I came down to consult on Lord of the Rings. and just never went back. So, of course. <laughs> and the other guy uh, made a fortune on laptop computers, and he bought a boat and lives in Lockman Harbor on giant yachts, you know, so he just loves it. It's great. Uh, I'm writing a book called, tentatively called, I don't have a publisher yet, tentatively called Digital Light, A Biography of the Pixel. And the idea is that we are now surrounded by pixels. The great digital convergence of all media into one has finally occurred. And nobody knows what a pixel is, is my experience when I ask people. They don't really know. Well, so well let me just say, I'm not going to tell you that it's a rectangle. How's that? It's not. That's, that's certainly part of the message. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I want, I want to explain Fourier and sampling and how you compute a, you know, how you compute a character inside a computer. And, you know, but all done without math for the lay reader. And I've got a great in-house editor and my wife. If I can get it past her, I think I am... And I've got a chapter written, and I send uh, an agent, so I, I may be able to sell this. You may be able to read it here in a year or two. 
Well, we can't thank you enough for taking time uh, from your schedule to talk to us because it's been an absolute delight and uh, I just hope you realise how uh, valued your contribution has been and how uh, much we uh, appreciate. Okay, well, good luck. I've enjoyed, as usual, talking. Okay. I do appreciate it. Thank you so much, sir. Well, Mike, that was fantastic. I hope uh, you know how much we appreciate those kind of long... I love that kind of an interview. That was so great. Yeah, well, thank you guys for... For listening and being uh, so supportive of FX Guide, we really appreciate you guys uh, supporting us. So you've been, uh, what's coming up on FX Guide TV? We also do the video podcast, obviously, and uh, what's coming up on there? Well, at the moment we have the Spider-Man, um, uh, and also in the end of Spider-Man is our preview of the uh, term at FX PhD for, um, <clears throat> for this July period. Um, but yeah, the, we went over to Sony at uh, Sony Imageworks and sat down with the guys there and had a really good afternoon uh, discussing the film with them. And so that's in the current one. And we've got a bunch of good stuff coming up. Of course, as we mentioned at the outset of this podcast, uh, SIDGRAPH's coming up. We're, of course, going to be going to SIDGRAPH. And uh, hopefully I can uh, uh, steal one of your spare beds, Jeff, and punk uh, <laughs> down in yeah. LA. But yeah, there's a lot of stuff to do and a lot of really good stuff coming up at SIDGRAPH. And we'll be bringing you all that coverage coming up, uh, obviously, from the beginning of August. Yeah, and uh, I think, I'm not sure yet, but um, we'll probably do a get-together with people, uh, FX insiders and uh, PhD students uh, during SIGGRAPH, like we usually try to do. If John Montgomery has anything to say in the matter, we certainly will. (laughs) (laughs) He is Minister of Beer. (laughs) So flagging that, the FX Insider is our program for... uh, uh, for you to help us with the site and give us uh, power to bring you more additional exclusive content. So member-only articles show up that is only available to FX Insiders, uh, additional breakdowns and more, and you can find out about that over at fxguide.com, and there's a tab for FX Insider. You can get all the details about that and become an FX Insider. Um, in addition to this podcast and the FX Guide TV that we've been talking about, we also do the VFX Show. What's going on on the VFX Show lately, Mike? Uh, we, uh, we've been going pretty well, actually. We've got uh, um, some retro shows coming up, though at the moment we're in the thick of new films because, of course, um, it's sort of summer blockbuster season, so we've been uh, discussing those. Uh, there's a Spider-Man one coming up very soon. Obviously, that is a review show. We try and break down what works and what doesn't work, our personal opinions and uh, those of basically guests on the show. We have a great roster of guests. You've, of course, Geoff, recently uh, joined that roster, which has been great. Yeah, I've jumped in a few times there, and uh, yeah, that's a great show. We like that. It, it gives us, we, we break a little bit from our normal reportage, uh, you know, <laughs> covering the, the movies and the details and the, and the behind the scenes and do more of a just fan discussion of the visual effects of the movies. Um, and then, of course, the RC podcast, which, of course, is my favorite. <laughs> I, I love, I mean, I love all, all the podcasts, but I'm just a, 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 a big fan of a good geek out, and you and Jason uh, have been... Uh, Delivering again, uh, back on track with uh, the digital cinematography. Yes, Jace has been phenomenally busy, but uh, we've been really trying to uh, stay in touch there. And we've actually got a really interesting, um, just you reminded me, which is terrific, um, a sort of a, an RC written piece, which we're just publishing. So this is unusual for us, but we had an opportunity to um, go through with Light Iron on a diary of the events leading up to and solving the problems around shooting Spider-Man. Now, it works basically in a written form because it's a diary um, uh, from Michael of the events. And hmm. there's some great behind-the-scenes stills during the testing and what it was like when they were testing, where there was only like six cameras that worked and, <laughs> and everything that goes on there. And that's up right now on uh, FX Guide. And you should check it out. It's uh, basically a written RC geek out. Um, but, of course, the epic was uh, 
one of the first cameras ever well the sorry spider-man was one of the first cameras ever to deploy the epic though it wasn't the first film to come out uh because there have been other ones like prometheus but um certainly spider-man was right at the forefront of that so hearing that and uh and i hadn't you know thought about it until michael was telling us about it but he's like you got to remember that this was an untested camera of which there was only like half a dozen that worked sort of and the chips in them were only six months old and this was like a 200 million dollar sony picture <laughs> yeah and they wanted to use these untested red cameras and you know it was like you could have reasonably thought this is never going to work um but of course it did oh and right around the time they were shooting that i was working on a job that stereo with the epic and uh as we got the stuff back i started finding problems with the time code and found out that they were two different versions of the firmware and the cameras. so i mean there's a lot of there were a lot of dangerous things going on back then things were mm. pretty pretty loosey-goosey so i'm sure they had took some bullets now, now that is that an industry term in la loosey-goosey i'm not i'm not familiar <laughs> with that term. <laughs> it's just like, like a bit of a you know diehard la term yes i, I need to learn your lingo what, this things is, were a little this. dangerous back then that's um, just a little, little scary <laughs> dangerous does sound slightly better than loosey goosey yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah um so uh check out that shooting diary of uh, spider-man over at uh, fx guy well look it's been a long podcast but uh, thanks so much for being with us guys i hope you enjoyed it hey can you guys uh, post some um comments if you have any in the section of the podcast on the uh page we'd love to hear your feedback and you know want to hear more of these just let us know well, I think that'll do it, Mike, uh, for, uh, for us Thanks, and John Montgomery, our partner. Uh, I'd like to thank everybody for uh, joining us on this podcast. As you said, it was a long one, but I think it was well worth it. And we'll see you on the next FX Podcast. Please let us know if you have any suggestions for stories or future podcasts. You can reach us by clicking the Contact Us link at the top of the homepage. This podcast is copyright FX Guide LLC. Broadcast or redistribution is prohibited without the expressed written consent of FX Guide.